This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 9th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Joe Patton joins Alexa Billow to discuss the relationship between our dopamine-based reward system and our perception of time, or, more simply, why time flies when we're having fun. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on using the cleansing fire of plasma. The first thing I learned in this story is that you can get norovirus from blueberries. And it's not very easy to kill this virus and get it off the surface of those berries. So researchers turned to plasma, the fourth state of matter. What other approaches have been tried to clean up blueberries, Dave, and why might plasma be better? Yeah, well, so first of all, norovirus is a pretty nasty thing. It's also known as the cruise ship virus, mm -hmm. so it sort of wreaks havoc with your uh, GI system yeah. and your intestines. But typically, to clean blueberries and other fruit, industry relies on some pretty standard things that wouldn't be too surprising to you making sure the water quality is good, making sure the equipment is clean. Sometimes they'll use chemical washes on fruit, although that can leave behind a toxic residue. And also these washes don't remove some harmful pathogens like norovirus. And so researchers are looking for a better, safer, and maybe even cheaper way. My first question on hearing this story was, isn't plasma hot? <laughs> I mean, it's the material that makes up the sun for the most part, and uh, it's inside of lightning and uh, other kinds of things. So can you clean blueberries with plasma without cooking them? In fact, researchers refer to this plasma as a purple blowtorch because <laughs> it can be hot and also because it, it sort of emits this violet color. They had these sort of blueberries in a jar when they, where they injected the plasma, and they also injected some sort of normal room temperature air in there as well to sort of make sure the blueberries didn't get cooked. If it's not hot, how do the researchers think the plasma is killing a virus? 
They don't know. <laughs> they know it's effective. They, what they found was that more than 99% of the viruses they tested, neither of which were noroviruses because that's sort of hard to cultivate in the lab, but they tested a couple of situations where these blueberries were infected with different viruses, and they found that the plasma basically wiped out almost all the virus. But they're not really sure how it works. Plasma is made of charged particles, electrons, and ions, and it's possible these are destroying the virus, but the researchers really don't know exactly what the mechanism is. Is this really a feasible approach? It seems like no residue would be a good idea, uh, but does plasma, does the creation of plasma, you know, use a lot of energy? Is this something that can scale up and clean off a lot of blueberries or even other kinds of fruit? Well, the good thing is it seems to be harmless. It doesn't use that much power. In fact, in the experiments that researchers ran, it required just one-fifth of the power of running a hairdryer. And the other nice thing about plasma is it because it's sort of like a gas, it can sort of get into all these nooks and crannies that other techniques might not be able to get into. That being said, this is just a few blueberries in a jar. And we're talking about massive commercial production that involves blueberries You've got to figure out a way to get a lot of plasma onto a lot of blueberries, which is still a big challenge. Now we have a story on high-altitude dogs. Tibetan mastiffs live in pretty inhospitable conditions. Cold, snowy, icy, and low oxygen. Now a new study suggests they didn't evolve tolerance for these conditions. Instead, they interbred with wolves to speed up their acclimation. Dave, what do we know about how people and dogs ended up on the Tibetan Plateau? We think this happened sometime around 24,000 years ago. This is when people were traveling to this region, and they also seem to have early dogs with them, although this is a bit controversial because nobody really knows when dogs were domesticated. Some say it was it was no uh, earlier than about fifteen or 16,000 years ago, but some say dogs were domesticated maybe 30,000 or more years ago, which would fit with this time frame. But either way, this team is saying that there was an early type of dog from China's lowland region that traveled with people to the Tibetan Plateau about 24,000 years ago. And both the people and the dogs had to very quickly adapt because of the conditions you mentioned, made it pretty hard to survive at high altitudes in the mountains there. Just to stick with people for one more minute, is the idea that the Tibetan people also received their high altitude fitness from interbreeding? Is that? Yeah, that's kind of one of the sort of the neat facets of the story because we already know that people also took a shortcut, it seems, to adapt into these altitudes instead of waiting hundreds or thousands of years for uh, the population to sort of adapt. It appears we may have interbred with a now extinct form of human called the Denisovans, who may have had an adaptation to this altitude, which people sort of stole that gene and it sort of helped them survive. And now it seems like a very similar thing may have happened with dogs. Right. So the researchers then looked at these genes that they saw in people, in Tibetans, that seemed to have helped them adapt to high altitude living. They looked at those same genes in a bunch of different types of dogs, including the mastiffs. What did they see that in the dogs, it made them think the same thing had happened. Well, what they saw in the mastiffs was they appear to have inherited a couple of genes from wolves, which helps them, seems to help their blood carry oxygen a little bit easier while also preventing their blood from clotting, which can happen at high altitudes if you're producing so many red blood cells to try to carry more oxygen. So it's a, at least a couple of genetic adaptations that they appear to have acquired simply from breeding with gray wolves. 
So wolves gave the dogs these genes. Did they look at wolves and see if they got anything out of their interbreeding with the mastiffs? Well, the genetic evidence uh, doesn't seem to indicate that the wolves got anything back, which is kind of interesting because we suspect that the Denisovans may have not gotten anything back or at least anything beneficial from people. And maybe that's one of the reasons the Denisovans disappeared. Last up, we have a story on jungle latrines. What lives in there? Okay. Maybe not what lives in there. We're not going that far, but we're going to talk about ocelot latrines. Dave, what are they? Well, these are places where, as you might expect, ocelots go to the bathroom. (laughs) But they also sort of leave their scents there in other ways. They can sort of mark it with scent glands and things like that. What's interesting about these things is that, first of all, it's really hard to find ocelot latrines because these cats are pretty antisocial. We're talking about the jungles of Central America, so it's sort of, sort of hard to track these cats through the jungles. But we do know that they're not just places where ocelots go to the bathroom, but they also seem to be important for ocelot to ocelot communication, not just in terms of, hey, this is my territory, but may even be a way for males to attract females, find out whether females are in heat and things like that. So my favorite part of this research is that people doing this study used a dog to find ocelot latrines. Not just a dog, a dog named Google. (laughs) Okay. Um, And that dog found four latrines, and then the researchers set up camera traps so they could spy on the ocelot message boards, basically. And what did they see after a few months of observation? One thing they saw was kind of expected. They saw a lot of ocelots visiting these latrines. 16 ocelots paid 63 visits over the course of the study. But they saw some surprises, too. They saw a lot of other animals, in fact, 13 other species, visiting the latrines, including armadillos, opossums, an animal called a coati, and an animal called a tera, which is related to the weasel family. In fact, these teras were visiting more often than the ocelots were. And you can actually see videos of all these animals visiting the ocelot latrines uh, on the site. We've got sort of a montage of animals captured by these camera traps. And what they're doing there is kind of rubbing themselves all over this tree that the ocelots have gone in the bathroom on. So do the researchers have any theories on what service this provides to those animals? I mean, the ocelots are using this as kind of a way to check in with each other. But what are the quaddies doing? What are the armadillos doing in there? They're not really sure, but one theory is that the opossums and the rodents may be trying to pick up a bit of that ocelot scent and rubbing it all over them as a way to ward off predators, which is pretty clever if that's what's happening. But beyond what the animals are actually doing, this is actually a really important find for biologists because you're talking about trying to not just track ocelots, but a number of other species to figure out what the biodiversity is, to maybe for conservation purposes. And instead of having to find, you know, 13 different spots for 13 different animals, hey, just train your camera on an ocelot bathroom and see who shows up. Before we get to what else is on the site this week, can you give us the final five candidates for the breakthrough of the year? We're now in the second round of voting. There are only five finalists left. You can go weigh in. It's pretty even at the time of this recording. So Dave, who's left in there? Well, Sarah, our top five breakthrough candidates are eliminating senescent cells to extend lifespan, pocket-sized DNA sequencers, artificial intelligence getting more intelligent, (laughs) ripples in space-time, and human embryos growing them in a dish. Thanks, Dave. Why don't you tell us what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how Earth's rotation has slowed over the past 
couple thousand years and what that tells us about predicting future and past eclipses. Also a story, more of a video about a tiny little robot that can do a backflip. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how investigations of sexual misconduct have caused a, a museum curator to resign. Also, a compromise in a three-year feud between the U.S. Congress and the National Science Foundation about how the National Science Foundation should operate. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Today's episode is brought to you by Heifer International. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org science for more information or call 888-548-6437. That's heifer.org slash science. Heifer International, help end hunger. Time flies when you're having fun. It's not just a figure of speech. There's scientific evidence to back it up. Our judgment of time is variable. Rewarding situations seem to go faster, and boring ones slow to an agonizing crawl. The neurotransmitter dopamine is involved with these reward systems, so does it control our judgment of time, too? Joe Patton is here to discuss new findings related to dopamine neurons and time perception. I'm Alexa Billo. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So what did we know before this study about the relationship between dopamine and time perception? So before our study, I think it's fair to say that the data was a bit mixed. Initially, experiments in animals using drugs that affect the dopamine system seem to suggest that more dopamine led to a sort of sped-up clock or overestimation of time. But these data can be hard to interpret because dopamine is also involved in things like motivation and the sort of overall vigor of behavior. Later, it was shown that some of these early results initially cast as timing effects might be explained by effects on these other factors. That was in animals. Now, in humans, one of the main causes of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease is the progressive loss of dopamine neurons. And it was observed that Parkinson's patients often express conflicting timing deficits, sometimes overestimating and at others, underestimating duration. So these two issues, I think, led us to this place where we could say, okay, dopamine seems to be involved in some way in timing, but exactly how is unclear. How is time related to our reward system? In myriad ways. We think one of the core functions of the brain is to try to learn to predict rewarding circumstances and to try and bend our behavior towards those situations that are likely to be good for us. Right there in the notion of prediction is time. Prediction is knowing in advance when something will happen. Of course, you need to be able to sense time to predict when something will happen or to know when to act. You trained mice in this study to make a judgment call about whether a time interval was long or short. And dopamine neurons in their midbrains showed activity that corresponded with their guesses. What does this tell us about how the mice are perceiving time? If you want to study perception in animals, you have a bit of a problem because we can't easily ask the animals what they're perceiving. The best we can do is to systematically control the environment, 
look at their behavior, and infer what they might be perceiving. And one way to do this is to train animals to make categorical judgments. This approach has been used for decades to study perceptual mechanisms in sort of classical sensory modalities like vision or audition. So you present sensory stimuli to the animal that vary along some dimension, say frequency in the case of sound, and ask animals to categorize the stimuli into, say, high and low frequency stimuli. And you reward them for correct judgments. And you train them until they're very good at it, where you think most of any variability in their judgment is due to actual variability in their perception of the stimulus. And then you can go into the brain and look for signals that co-vary with the judgment, all else being equal. And we use this approach to study time estimation, but the principle is the same. We train mice to categorize intervals into long and short categories until they were really good at it. And dopamine neurons were consistently more active when mice judged a given interval as short compared to when they judged that same interval as long. In addition, transiently activating dopamine neurons caused mice to more likely judge a stimulus as short. And transiently decreasing their activity caused mice to more likely judge a stimulus as long. So the activity of dopamine neurons in our experiments both correlated with and was sufficient to cause changes in timing judgments. You aren't looking at dopamine per se, but the activity of these neurons that release dopamine. So how are you looking into these mice's brains in real time? In this study, we both measured and manipulated the activity of dopamine neurons in separate experiments. To measure activity, we used a recently established technique called fiber photometry. So we induced dopamine neurons to make specific proteins. These proteins, if excited with the right wavelength, will fluoresce or emit light when calcium binds to them. Now, calcium is normally very low inside a cell, but when a nerve cell generates an electrical impulse, an action potential, calcium levels rapidly and briefly rise. So by inserting a small fiber optic just above the dopamine neurons we want to study, we can both deliver excitation light and collect fluorescence and thus measure the activity of, of those dopamine neurons. Would our brains have some sort of reason to play around with our perception of time other than just to mess with us? Yeah, so this is where I get to speculate wildly. If you think about it, behavior is sequential, and we're constantly having to decide whether to maintain engagement with our current situation or activity or to switch and try something else. One reason that neurons implicated in reward processes, these dopamine neurons, might exert some influence over our sense of time is that our decisions of whether to maintain engagement or switch to something else depend both on how rewarding and how long we've been engaged in our current course of action. By creating a system that senses time is passing more slowly, that is, real time is flying, when things are better than expected, this may lead us to stay engaged in that situation for longer and ultimately reaping greater benefit than if our sense of time were not so malleable. Conversely, when things are worse than expected, a scenario known to depress dopamine neurons, and again, this is like a faster internal clock, but real time appears to be standing still, might lead us to disengage earlier, leading us to potentially greener pastures of some alternative activity. So maybe this flexibility in our sense of time is just another example of the brain being sort of helpfully subversive, transforming the world in a way that leads us to behave adaptively. What other ways do our brains have of sensing time? Is there like a master clock tying everything together or do we have all these different systems? Yeah. So time is fundamental for so many things that the brain does. Our auditory system compares the times at which a sound arrives at our two ears to localize the origin of that sound in space. And that mechanism operates at a very fast time scale. The brain also has mechanisms within specialized cells that help keep our entire body on an accurate day-night cycle. 
So I, I don't think there's one clock to rule them all. Rather, it looks like you have mechanisms for encoding time in different brain areas that are relevant for the particular function that each brain area carries out. Dopamine neurons project broadly to many downstream areas, but particularly densely to a system called the basal ganglia. And we think this system is critical for learning how to select behavior that leads to good outcomes. As I mentioned earlier, achieving that goal requires keeping time. And maybe it's because of this that we see such clear effects of manipulating dopamine neurons on timing. Joe, thanks so much for talking with us. Uh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Joe Patton and colleagues write about the role of dopamine neurons in time judgment in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.